over the years, people that have reached out because to them, even seeing a picture of Harissa or a picture of Kipta on the Assyrian Kitchen page brings back memories because they haven't been able to enjoy that food for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And now they have a place to come and do that. Hello, Assyrian podcast family. Welcome to episode 71. It's John in Chicago, and this week, I bring to you a wonderful conversation I had with Autorina Zamaya of Assyrian Kitchen. It was a hot and muggy weekday as I made the trip to the Jefferson Park neighborhood and walked over to the beautiful blue, can't-miss exterior of Assyrian Kitchen. That lovely exterior seeps into the interior as well, with walls adorned with Assyrian art and family photos. Autorina told me all about the importance of that design decision and why she wanted to open a brick-and-mortar standalone location in the first place. We also discussed different foods, the proper Assyrian names for some of those foods, and making non-Assyrians aware and informed of our historic and culinary footprint on the world. If you're a foodie, linguist, interior decorator, entrepreneur on pretty much any level, you will really enjoy this episode. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalagarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. Now grab yourselves a snack because you will be hungry after this one and enjoy episode 71 with Autorina Zomaya. We are recording here at Assyrian Kitchen in the lovely Jefferson Park neighborhood of Chicago. Sitting across from me is the founder of Assyrian Kitchen, Atarina Zamaya. Atarina, thank you so much for sitting down with me and having this discussion. Thank you, John. I'm really excited. Um, it's been, what, nine months that we've been trying to <laughs> yes. secure this, uh, this conversation, this interview. So All I'm really good things excited. come to those who wait. Yes, that is true. So before I usually get into kind of the background story of everybody, so I want to talk about Assyrian Kitchen, the physical brick and mortar location you have now, but we'll get into that plenty down the road. So before we get into any of that, I want to go step into the Assyrian podcast time machine. I want to go back into childhood Autorina time. So what are some of the earliest memories of your love of food, whether it's a favorite dish, first time helping out with cooking, anything like that? So I would say that my uh, first memories of food go back to um, my first piece of bread or uh, my first kubba. Uh, I was always the first one to be at the table while the kids were still playing in the backyard at my grandmother's house, um, basically waiting to, to start, the, start eating and in, enjoying the feast. Um, I would say that, you know, growing up, I always noticed that my, my grandmother was, uh, spent most of her day in the, in the kitchen. Um, stirring her bushala, making her kipte, and she always had a very peaceful, um, but yet very passionate presence when it was around food, because that's how she showed her love um, to us, to her, to her entire family and friends. So food has always been, um, food has always been part, Assyrian food specifically, has been part of like my memory 
Um, and if you look back at photos of me growing up, thanks to my dad, um, there's always, you know, it's a picture of like all the cousins and the kids together. And I'm, if you, if you zoom in, there's a piece of bread in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, there's proof out there that, you know, food was always on my mind. It's totally relatable. I was a bread kid myself, so I, I totally get it. <laughs> and so growing up for you, I mean, what were some career goals that you may have had along the way that you might not have had anything to do with cooking or food in general? Sure. Um, so I think as a kid, because I really enjoyed um, talking, I, I, I think that I was never shy um, and my parents encouraged that. They would always uh, tell me that I should be a snahra, which is an attorney. And um, that was always ingrained. And I, I think at one point I, I even tried, you know, going down that path, but it wasn't for me. That was one of the things growing up that was always on my mind um, because your parents told you you know, that's, that's something that's perfect for you because you love to talk. But yeah, and so after that, um, I actually, my background's in marketing and communications. Um, that's where my focus has been uh, as a professional working in the uh, technology and the software technology space. And um, just ha sort of, you know, building my, my career over the last uh, 15 years in that space has been great. I think it gives you a lot of structure and uh, the ability to kind of, um, start your own business so we'll get into that a little bit sure, later some people might think that's completely unrelated <laughs> it but you, it helps to have some marketing skill yeah. when you have your own uh, empire like this so to yes. speak uh, when did the cooking bug specifically hit you and why do you think it started yeah i think that um so i was probably the last person in the family that anyone would ever think would have this passion or love for food in this way right i've always been the person at the table not the person you know <laughs> um bringing food to the table <laughs> And so I think that back in 2011, a Syrian kitchen was just was a thought and it was a thought to basically share our culture. Um, if I take a step back growing up, I was really grateful like for, to my parents for instilling that that appreciation for for who we are, who we are as Assyrians. being a first generation um, Assyrian American was really important to still have that awareness of the history of the culture, the heritage, the traditions. So. Growing up, I, I learned how to uh, read and write in Assyrian. I still do. Um, and it, it allows you to have that not only appreciation for the Assyrian history and, and, and what we had to offer, but just an acknowledgement of global history as a whole. And so having that and then looking at food as this, this, this way to kind of reach other people. Because growing up, I think when you grow up in two different worlds, and I say this a lot, I, I felt like I was always growing up in two different worlds, and that was because you, you spoke Assyrian at home, but you had friends who weren't Assyrian. And how do you balance that? So being able to see the beauty of the Assyrian culture, the beauty of the American culture, and bringing that together, and never being ashamed of the differences and celebrating those differences was I think the foundation for, you know, fast forward to 2011, thinking of a way to share the Assyrian culture through food was just so, it was just so clear. And so Assyrian Kitchen started off as cooking classes um, at a Whole Foods in Chicago, where I would invite uh, guest uh, chef instructors to, to teach a class. So we would partner up, we would figure out what, which dishes we were gonna focus on, which Assyrian traditional dishes we would, would talk about and teach. It would always start off, and to this day, this is how our cooking classes are run. Uh, we start off with a little bit of history. We talk about, we do a demo, uh, whether it's pickling or learning how to make yogurt. 
And then it goes into a hands-on experience where everyone in class, you know, has the opportunity to, to make the kubbe, the kipte, the dolma, whatever it might be. And then at the end, we sit down and have a shared meal. And it's an experience. And that's something that you still see today in a Syrian kitchen. But that was the, that was the start of it. It was, it was just a, it was a very simple way to, to share the culture at a time where I felt that that was, that was needed. Um, it's, it's getting to the hearts through the stomach. And I think that through our, with our food, I think our food is delicious. I know we're biased, but I've, I, I think I, anybody <laughs> can objectively say that our food is delicious. It is. Yes. And you're almost connecting on two different levels, whereas your cooks and the chefs that you work with are not always necessarily Assyrian. So they're also learning something new that they're learning something there. And then you're passing it down to your students that you're teaching. So it's almost connecting on two different levels to the people who are professional on some level and to the people who are just kind of amateur cooks in their own home. Well, our guest instruct, our chef instructors are usually Assyrian. So okay. they're, they're, they're instructors that have, you know, basically been, um, they were raised eating this food. So it's, it's, it, 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 and what's interesting is that there's different regions that are represented in how right. certain dishes are made. And so that's always fascinating to see. As for our guests, they're not uh, usually Assyrian. And so that's the whole point. It's being able to share, again, this window into Assyrian cuisine. And we'll talk more about this, but to talk about the world, these recipes that stem from the world's oldest cookbook, that to me is just so fascinating. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but I just think that that's where that connection is made. It's being able to just sit down and have a meal with people, connect over these thoughts, uh, over history, which, you know, it, to me says a lot. It's talking about the origins and how we can connect in a very simple way over food. There was a documentary series, uh, probably just a few years ago, that anybody could find on YouTube, uh, where you had mentioned that upon leaving an Italian cooking class that you were taking at the time, uh, where you had just learned how to make gnocchi, uh, it dawned on you that you didn't even know how to make kipta at the time, which is funny because I only know you as a person that does know how to make kipta. So was that like the aha moment that, was, that you needed to not only learn how to make the meals that you had consumed your entire life so many times, but also share those recipes with the rest of the world? Yes, definitely. Because it was just one of those moments where you realize, wow, I just came to a cooking class to learn something that was foreign to me. But then something that you know we've grown up with it, because it was always, again, um, I don't know if you can relate to this, but growing up, it wasn't um, the arts in the food, the art of food or the food arts weren't something that was really pushed as a, as a child growing up. Again, it goes back to, uh, well, are you considering going to law school? Are you considering going to become a doctor or an engineer? Those are the three, right? Then, <laughs> um, and, and that, and, and I think that the arts didn't, weren't highlighted in the same way and so I never had the opportunity to just sit down you did help around holiday time or you know like I said earlier when everyone's making uh, kubbas and the burage which have a new name now right <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll touch on we'll that touch one on too that. I can't wait for that portion of yes. that actually and so I think that these are all you know important reasons to say okay you know what I knew I knew that this was a delicious dish I knew that this is something we grew up on but I never took a moment to appreciate it in, in the way I should have and so it was it was two-pronged it was learning how to make these dishes and learning and at the same time very quickly sharing them with with others and you created Assyrian Kitchen in 2011. 
And you touched a little bit on some of the details there, but talk us through how you hatched the initial idea. What did you see in your mind as how you wanted to put it out creatively and even as a business model? How did you want to present it to your audience at the sure. time? At the time, it was really a concept that was built around um, a cooking class, an opportunity to invite guests that would register for these classes uh, to experience Assyrian cuisine for the first time. and. Um, my goal was always to target people who, who had not experienced Assyrian food and to ha give them an opportunity to also uh, hear a very brief history lesson and then go into the food um, and then make these connections in, in, in the class environment. Everything was always hands-on. And again, it was just connecting with different, um, I, I would say cultures, because what you would hear a lot from certain guests or students would be the comparison to our dishes and what, mm -hmm. what they grew up enjoying. And so those commonalities were always, again, fascinating to me. And then fast forward along this journey, I come across the Yale tablets. So the Yale tablets refer to the world's oldest cookbook written on clay tablets by Assyrians, ancient wow. Assyrians. So there are three tablets with close to 40 recipes. So many things haven't changed. And then you start reading more about, you know, just the ancient food history. Um, for me, it was, it was a moment to pause because here we are looking at the world's oldest cookbook and it wasn't getting the attention it deserved. We are eating dishes. We are, our cuisine goes back to the world's oldest cookbook. Let's take a minute, take that in. Isn't that the coolest thing ever? The first civilized humans are still eating more or less the same exact yes, food. Yes, yes. And so that to me was just, it propelled me to like just kind of go turn this in like this project that I had in my mind to something bigger. And so along the way, I partnered with the Oriental Institute uh, with Assyriologists that would actually, we'd invite them into our uh, cooking classes. We partnered with them on a few programs that the OI led. And then there were times where we invited the Assyriologists to, to join us. So it would be a conversation with, you know, myself, uh, the Assyriologist and then the guest chef and we would talk about the tools, the ancient tools that the Assyrians used. We'd talk about the uh, ancient ingredients, what's changed. Dolma wasn't made with rice back then. How did those conversations even begin? Did you just reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? I, I happened to be there for a meeting with, at the time, the director of the OI. It was in 2012, I believe, and um, I connected with a few of the folks that were there for this private meeting. And so that's how it started. And, and since this was always a passion project for me, I don't always talk about it. Like now, this is all I talk about, right? Back then it was, yeah, I work on this project. This is what we do. It's a cooking class. Um, but again, I embraced it fully. It's just that in my mind, it was not where I wanted it to be. And so it was just a matter of building on that. And so working, I mean, being in Chicago, born and raised here, I mean, it, the Oriental Institute is a home away from home. And I remember growing up, my cousins would come into town, family members. I mean, it was always a trip to the OI, even though we've seen it so many times before, but it's, it's this very magical connection when you go in there. And so to be there, to be able to work with the, the, the folks at the OI and to build on some of these classes that we had was just, it was huge. It was, it was, a, it was a big part of, it, it, was a, it was a key milestone, I think, on this journey. To this day, we, we are, you know, still in, in conversation with the OI. And the goal of that really is to give this connection, this, it's to highlight the continuity of the old Assyrians, the ancient Assyrians, and the modern day Assyrians. 
that continuity is still there. We're still enjoying. I mean, I always say this, like the, the gubbebate, which we now know as kubba, and the Middle East refers to as kebebat, kebbe, kubba, right? Can we talk about that, actually? Yes, because we were having that. a conversation before this all started about how we use technically incorrect terms to mm-hmm. describe certain foods. Where did it all begin with you to, dis- uh, to not discover, I should say, but to research the, the language and some of the root words? Yes. So it wasn't too long ago that I was trying to research the term for burage because I felt that that wasn't the right word. I went back to Acadia and tried to do the comparison through the books and couldn't really find the origin of the word. And then somewhere along, I, I, I found that, and this is true, I think, for a lot of different um, cuisines. When a dish is named, sometimes it's named by, the, by one key ingredient in that dish. Right. So I don't know if you've heard of like, it's, it's borax, it's, it's a chemical ingredient. Well, apparently it was used as a, as a leavening agent in the dough. And so the connection that I was able to come across was that that's where the word burak over time became what it is today. Because if you listen to how different cultures in the Middle East refer to that type of food, right? It's, it's usually dough stuffed with meat, right? And spices and onions. Um, so it's it was effectively named after one tiny ingredient in the grand scheme of things. Yes. Interesting. Yes. And so um, that's not what we call them here at Assyrian Kitchen. So there's a movement, and the movement is to make sure that we are calling these ancient dishes that we're still enjoying today as a people with a very rich and diverse history, um, with a very rich culinary history, their right names and giving them the opportunity to have their own pedestal. And so to me, you know, well, the word here, it's called, we call them a pitu because that is a savory, it describes what it is. Uh, so a pitu and not burak. And, and um, for one of our Friday night dinners uh, recently, we served what we formally call basturma, right? And Middle East, and there's a lot of different cuisines that refer to it as that. It's the cured meats. Uh, but ancient Assyrians called cured meats midlu. So that's what we call it today. Okay. It's very important because that misappropriation, right, of the culture uh, should not be overlooked. And I think as a people who have always been trying to preserve the language and we've tried to preserve our identity and preserve ourselves, living in diaspora, I mean, it was difficult to really celebrate the arts and to celebrate the, the culinary arts um, and that's why it's very important if you if you come into a Syrian kitchen, um, the arts, the way we curated this venue was very important to us. In September 2018, you and Chef Dan Sarkis became engaged. And in April 2019, you two opened up a physical location of the Syrian kitchen in the Jefferson Park neighborhood of Chicago. Was that always the plan long term? So what's funny is that um, I'll take you back. So Chef Dan um, was actually one of my first instructors at Assyrian Kitchen hey. seven years ago. <laughs> um, we lost contact for about five years. And then um, that's when I reached out to him after, uh, after five years. I reached out to him to see if he'd be interested in partnering on the Assyrian Aid Society King Ashuna Sotopal Gala. It's a private event at the Oriental Institute here in Chicago. Mind you, he, I, we, this venue does not have a kitchen. Um, it's a miracle how we're able to create this feast and, and feed about 70 to 80 people that <laughs> attend this event. It's actually our third year this year that we um, continue to curate the menu and execute. And so when I reached out to him, he was definitely interested. And then again, we sort of lost contact over the year. Um, and then fast forward, we got engaged, as you mentioned. So when we started talking about this place, the thought was always to 
provide the cooking classes to have a place where we can share Assyrian food, but it was never really um, it was never really in the concept of like an, a restaurant. So that was never part of the the strat of the thought, right? Um, but we definitely we thought about the product line. We talked we talked about the cooking classes, private events were definitely on the list, and so being able to establish this place just made it a little bit more, I think, realistic to be able to. Um, Dan has his own his own restaurant in the city, uh, Zaytun Mediterranean Grill. So his experience and being able to kind of come together and kind of drive it forward with the passion and the intent that Assyrian Kitchen had from the start, which was really to share the Assyrian cuisine. And my goal from the start has been to put Assyrian cuisine on the global culinary map, to give it a pedestal of its own because um, it is missing its it's missing its its um, it's it doesn't have a presence today. Uh, in the same way that it should, right? right? In the same way that it should. And so being able to have this brick and mortar and to be able to invite guests into this place um, has been really a dream come true. And I'd imagine that location was not only important to just implement your interior design ideas, which I want to touch on as well, and to have enough space for you to do everything, uh, but could you have pulled this off in a faraway suburb somewhere, away from the main Assyrian hubs in like Chicago, Lincolnwood, and Skokie? Um, I think that it was very important to us to keep it in the heart of Chicago for several reasons. Um, as you can tell, we're on Northwest Highway here in Chicago. It's not the busiest of streets for pedestrians. Um, the way our concept or our model works really is to, to, to target audiences that are interested in, in coming in for an experience. Uh, you attended one of our brunches, right? I did. Yeah. The Mother's Day brunch, Mother's which Day was brunch. amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, and so it's all about it's the experience, it's the full hospitality, the food, you come in here and you really, um, our, our goal is to make sure you feel that same warmth that you would if you came into our home. Um, location was very important. Um, we didn't want to be too far away from the Assyrian community, but our goal is really to open our doors for, for to, to anyone that's interested in delicious food and coming in and, and really experiencing food inspired by these ancient tablets, food that's still being enjoyed in Assyrian homes today in Chicago where we have close to 100,000 Assyrians living here today. I mean, to me, that was the real dream come true, to being able to bring this idea into, in, in, into a city in, in Chicago where you know it's important for people to really know. I mean, they always, you turn around and you're like, well, I think over the years people know who Assyrians are, but how do you really connect with people? It's through food, I think. And so having a meal, getting a little bit of a history lesson in the beginning and then sharing it with people that you don't know because we had our type of dining is, is more communal and so it's important for us to make connections with people that you don't know when you come in um, but we make sure that you don't leave without that warmth and, and that's very important to us because hospitality is one thing you feel when you go into any Assyrian home and that is definitely, we, we hope that that's felt here when people leave a Syrian kitchen. And I think there's a big scene, a big food scene, if you will, in the Chicagoland area where Chicagoans love their ethnic food and they want to figure out how it's made and what the story is behind it. There's, I would even say, the entire country of the United States loves that type of stuff because you can't really get by on burgers and hot dogs every single <laughs> week, you know? So I, I think that's a great point <laughs> yes. that you make and you fill a void uh, in a city that loves its diversity and its ethnic foods and ethnicity all around. So yes. I love that. And I know something that you've been dying to touch on 
<laughs> you put so much effort into the design and decor of the Syrian kitchen. Uh, describe to our audience who have not been here yet what they can find within these walls and tell us why that was important to you. Sure. Um, I, I think that the reason this was important because we wanted people to feel when when they walked in through, walked through our doors to, to get a sense of what ancient royalty, ancient Assyrian royalty would, would walk into, right, 6,000 years ago. So we have lapis lazuli walls, um, we have candles, we have art, and that's very important to, to me, to Dan. And the reason that's important is because as a people, the arts, under the umbrella of all arts, right, is tells you the strength of, of a people. And I think that, um, and you'll notice that our art here is mostly from uh, Paul Batu is based out of California. Love a Syrian him. podcast guest, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, he is amazing. Uh, when I first saw his work uh, years ago, it was actually at, uh, I think it was at the Mesopotamian Night Gala. Um, I fell in love with his work, and it's very bright. There is some sadness to it, but that is reflective of our people today. And I think that you see that. You see this somber sort of state of some of the, um, just some of the faces in, in the art but there's still color. And I think that says a lot about our people because we've been through so much, but we still continue. We're still, we're still here. And we're, we're, the, that perseverance is something that is very important to us through the language, through the food, through the traditions, um, and then of course the arts. And that's why that was so important to us. At the end of the day, we wanted it to feel like home. And so if you walk into my home, you do see family mem uh, pictures of our uh, grandparents, our great grandparents, and, and that's also reflective here. So you'll see that. Um, in the corner is my buried cheese box. Um, and so that's, part, that's one of the products that we launched, that I launched a few years ago. Um, so it's, it's colorful, it's bright, but it also has a warmth that you would experience if, if you were to come into someone's home. And you, you mentioned your three family photos that are along the back wall over here. Can you tell us the story behind these three photos and perhaps when they were taken? Sure. I think that, um, so the one in the middle is my paternal grandfather. I don't think that I know that that is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was starting with that one. Okay, so that's my paternal grandfather and grandmother. Um, so that was just a picture of them. I think they're at a wedding or an event back in Baghdad. And then to the right, it's my pater it's my maternal um, grandmother, grandfather. My mother's in the middle. Uh, my two uncles, and then my aunt Linda. So that was, I think, right before they came to the states, right? Um, and it's interesting; they never smiled in any of those photos. But to we me, we have a lot of those too, with yeah. with older generations just not smiling yeah. in photos. No selfies, definitely. I think it was just <laughs> photography it in was. that era. Yeah, but I think that that just adds a. Um, it really. It, it, it adds a warmth for me because it just feels, when I walk in here and you see f familiar faces, to me it's home, right? And I, we just hope that that is also something that our, our guests feel. Uh, we always say our guests come in sort of as strangers into this venue, but they walk away and I, we always see this and it's so amazing. People hug, people that were just eating a meal together, enjoying a meal, and we usually, um, we have assigned seating. so. Um, with intent, we usually like to have one or two Assyrians, if they are attending the event, to sit with non-Assyrians so that they can also um, understand how to eat gupta tomorta with a flat bread, yeah. right? Um, and so it's it's important. So it's by design. Everything is by intent, right? With with design. And so seeing. 
people leave this place hugging each other goodbye, saying goodbye the way Assyrians usually do when they're not Assyrians, right? To me, it's just so, I mean, that that's where you know that this is where we need to be with Assyrian kitchen. And um, that's that's really important. I was here for the, the Mother's Day brunch, as you mentioned, in late April. And, and I totally felt that warmth. Like, aside from the food being great and everything, the, the atmosphere was phenomenal. Uh, there were Assyrians and non-Assyrians alike, and it just felt like a very home atmosphere. Uh, and then the way the food was presented and shared at the table was, was excellent. So you started off with the Mother's Day brunch. In June, for three of those weeks, every Friday night, you had hosted what you called Ishtar Nights Dinner Series. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what that whole idea was about? Sure. So I love Ishtar. I love her story. Um, and actually, a lot of these paintings here uh, reflect Ishtar. And for, for me, Ishtar is all about love. Even though she was the goddess of love and war, I celebrate the love. And so with that, we made sure that the theme for our first dinner series was celebrating the love. And um, it was an opportunity to share a little bit of that history uh, and, and really invite the community to come in to get a taste of these ancient Assyrian uh, dishes inspired by the tablets. And that was really the, the intent behind that. So with something like Ishtar Night's dinner series and the upcoming series that you have any time in the future, what goes through your mind when you're picking out the menu for each of those series? So for the Ishtar Nights and the themed events, it's more about the tablet-inspired menus. So we look back at the, uh, at the ancient menus, the ancient uh, tablets for inspiration. So that's where those menus are created. As for the Taste of Home, which is going to be our ongoing Friday night it's no longer a series because it's just our Friday night dinners. Every Friday. Every Friday, yeah, end of July. So our schedule is going to be going up soon. Um, so that's going to be traditional Assyrian cuisine, what you have at an Assyrian home. And so nice. that's going to be really special because um, so far with our brunches, uh, I think our guests got a glimpse of that. Um, but then there's so much more we can do with our dinners. And that's why we're excited about that starting in late July. And you like to put your, your spin on certain recipes. How do you know what aspects of a recipe to tinker with? And what are some examples of classic Assyrian dishes that you've tweaked with maybe some modern twists? So when we're in the kitchen and sort of testing recipes, um, Dan and I are always, so again, it's making sure it's authentic in the sense that it's close to how it sh was or how it should be or how it's enjoyed today. Um, the traditional dishes that will definitely be on the menu, just a few, you, you can expect kubbebate, which are kubbe, we talked about that, um, because that's very important. And that, again, it's it's sort of, uh, it's a nod to the past and to the present, because that's definitely on an Assyrian uh, table today. You have the bushala, right? And um, the kipte, you'll have dolma, but actually, not with rice. We'll make it with um, with barley. Aha! Uh -huh. So a little so bit different. So that's a little unique twist. Yeah. That's the twist there. Um, again, so it, it again, it's keeping for these traditional these taste of home. It's really what you would enjoy growing up in an Assyrian home. What is your favorite Assyrian dish to quote unquote remix with perhaps a an American or other ethnic flavoring? I think the going back to. Um, Again, we don't call them burage, but I'm just saying that so um, our, our 
guests can can <laughs> connect to what I'm trying but to say. But what do you call them again? The epitu. Yeah. Let's get that spreading. You know? Yes, epitus. <laughs> um, I love I love epitus and I love kukbe. I think those two are really fun to kind of give um, uh, a twist to. I had an event several years ago where it was Mesoamerica meets Mesopotamia. So those two flavors coming together. Because if you look at like the empanada or if you look at some of our fried like croquettes that we make, there's so many, I mean, so similar. I was in mm -hmm. Colombia last summer and again on the street, so street food and just looking at um, how, how they made their dishes, their traditional dishes, so similar to some of ours, right, that we enjoy. And to me, again, that's where like that, and again, you won't, that's more of something that we would make at home. You wouldn't have that here, um, but it's a great idea for another themed event, Mesoamerica meets Mesopotamia. There we go. Um, but it's amazing to see those commonalities. So those are some of the dishes that you can really kind of spice it up in a different way. But I think, you know, having um, a good bowl of just girdu or harissa or bushala, that's just, I mean, how do you, my grandfather used to call um, kipte shurwad malache. So that's like the stew for angels. I mean, that's a perfect way to describe it. It's very poetic. That. Very. <laughs> but that's a perfect way to describe that dish. And so it's just like good. It's not, it doesn't have to be greasy soul food or it doesn't have to be, um, it, it doesn't have to be rich. It just has to be something that just warms your your soul, right? And that's what I think, you know, a lot of our food sort of bring out of us. And especially when you're sharing them together in a communal dining, communal setting, um, people share that and you hear that. And it's just really good to... And touching on the, the rest of your family or some of your other family members, Assyrian Kitchen isn't the only food outlet that you have. Uh, you also founded Buried Cheese. Uh, tell us the story of Nana Susie and her methods of oh. aging cheese. Yes, so um, Nana Susie arrived in Chicago in 1971. And of course, she continued to preserve and pickle and um, <laughs> carry on to the traditions uh, that she brought with her. And I, I think that's so awesome that she did that. And one of them was to, to age cheese. So Gupta um, Tomorta, what we have today is buried cheese, is, is an adaptation of her recipe. And of course, back in Baghdad, she had to bury, she buried it underground. But this goes back to ancient Assyrian methods of preserving, which were buried in clay pots. And we have a few that are here. Mm -hmm. um, they're replicas of what you would actually find underground, you know, thousands of years ago, and which were made for cheese, right? And so Nana Susie's berry cheese recipe, of course, we had to adapt in terms of how we aged that cheese, but it's something that, again, we're able to kind of continue. And it's very unique because um, it's not something that's out there on the shelves today. And when I started thinking about that first product, because that is our first product, that was something that was important to me, something unique, something that is um, that is that we enjoyed growing up. And again, berry cheese is when you're a kid and um, your 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 first experience of berry cheese isn't so positive because it's usually <laughs> a very pungent smell. Yeah, um, there's a lot of other names for berry cheese, <laughs> um, and so that wasn't. But but wow, like to me, again, it goes back to the history and the, the traditions that come with it. Um, and people love it. People love berry cheese. And you do sell them in 16-ounce jars on exactly. berrycheese.com. Yes. How popular are those? Uh, people love them. And uh, there was a time where, we, where I was out at farmer's markets selling them, and people just bought them by the cases. I mean, I'm, it's again, it's a little bit different. Uh, caraway fennel cheese, I mean, 
it's just you it you enjoy it with with just bread and, and chai or you can have it with shaptia or on its own i mean it's it's always cheese time in my house so <laughs> um if you if you love cheese i mean berry cheese is definitely something you should try one of the great things about both Assyrian Kitchen and Berry Cheese is that you have recipes, for example, on the Assyrian Kitchen website that anyone can follow. And on Berry Cheese, you have this section that's dedicated to ways of savoring the cheese. Mm -hmm. And I see these images of cheese sprinkled on salad and on pasta and melted in soup, on pizza and burgers. Do you personally have a favorite application of that cheese, or do you just love cheese as much as I do? You said, oh, you know, yeah. cheese is at your house all the time, and do you just try to put it on everything? We actually just made it here for our, um, our last event, and it was our flatbread with berry cheese, melted with berry cheese. I mean, that, that was sounds just amazing. delicious. Yeah, so bread, cheese, any day, all day, all, I mean, it's just, um, I'm in heaven, you know? That's, that's my last meal, <laughs> bread, cheese. And, going, and tequila. <laughs> oh, and tequila. It's the washed all the cheese down. Yeah. Going back to the question about your earliest memories of food, uh, who were some people, past and present, who helped develop your talent and mentored you through this culinary journey of yours? I think the inspiration, first inspiration would be my grandmother, but my mom was right there. And so it, to this day, I mean, my mom is still uh, a mentor, I, I would say, because she... She always enjoyed cooking. And again, they showed their love through food. Um, but it, it's just, it's one of those things where you have to pay attention to, and you have to have the passion for it, the patience for it, because a lot of our dish, especially um, the kubbas, right? We talked about that. And we talked about, we forgot to mention the um, the, the pies. So what we have is the flatbreads today with, with, with meat and onions. Yes. That actually goes back to a recipe on the tablet for a wild fowl pie. So the meat pies we enjoy today that have another name, right? Um, basically, in Assyrian, it's meat breads, right? Yeah, pretty simple. Um, it goes back to this ancient recipe, sort of the first pizza in a way, right? The, a lot of our food just take a lot of time and, and, and um, just love. And if you don't enjoy that, um, it's, it's hard to really... To, to, to create something that's delicious. There's times where I'm making cheese back there, and if I'm not, if I'm in a hurry, or if I'm not in the right sort of um, mindset for the day, right, it doesn't turn out the same way I'd want it to be. And I really think that, you know, it is important to enjoy what you're doing all the time and take the, it's just patience. I think this teaches you a lot of patience, just being in the kitchen and uh, enjoying enjoying your time back there so your grandma and your mother were obviously two very uh, present and positive forces you have dan who you work off of a lot now and for assyrians in general and so many other people alike really food and family are so strongly intertwined right um do you find yourself being inspired or motivated by your family as a whole when you're not only kind of per uh, preserving these ancient foods but also adding a dash of your own personality to them I would say now this the collaboration with Dan um, is just on a whole different level. He he brings in over 20 years of experience in the culinary field, um, and it's really allowing us, especially for the theme nights, we we're elevating the Assyrian cuisine scene to another level, and which is really really awesome. Bringing in different techniques, but again, that's where it allows us to kind of put Assyrian on that more formal and. Again, tying it back, Assyrian cuisine, even going back to like the, the tablets, was refined. It wasn't as simple as one would think. The way they actually 
blended the ingredients, uh, the spices, the way they prepared them. I think that that's what we're reviving. We're bringing that back. So being able to collaborate with with Dan um, is just allowing us to kind of take a Syrian cuisine to a whole different level. I have some perhaps philosophical questions for you. Grand scheme of things. How much of an emphasis might you put on, let's say, educating the younger Assyrian generations on preserving Assyrian recipes? And why might that be important? It's so important. Okay, just like language and the other arts, right? Knowing how to prepare food to to sustain yourself and why not make it delicious, healthy food, um, you know, it doesn't have to be fried. It doesn't have to be. We have our food is just healthy. It's good food. It's a lot of the ancient Assyrian diet was based on vegetables and grains, right? And then meat. Um, but I think that it's so important today for for the younger generation to get in the kitchen, learn from their elders, learn from uh, people in the house that enjoy to cook, because you know what, your mom and dad might not be there tomorrow to like make that kipta. And that's something that's really cool with the Syrian kitchen over the years, people that have reached out because to them, even seeing a picture of Harissa or a picture of Kipta on the Assyrian kitchen page brings back memories because they haven't been able to enjoy that food for the last 10 or 15 years. And now they have a place to come and do that. And the other thing is learning how to make. So I had um, someone from our brunch uh, sessions reach out to us and ask if we can set up a Kade cooking class. Nice. Right. So we do these private events, private cooking classes for groups of 15 or more. And so that was something that she wanted to learn because she hasn't had Cadiff for a very long time since her mother passed. And so you, to me, that connection, to just have that aroma, to be able to make it, why not learn how to you know, create those dishes now before you know, it's too late to make it the way your mom made it or your dad made it. Um, so that's why it's so important. And you should, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's, just an, it, it's, it's something that, I realized a little bit later in life, so it's never too late whenever you're trying to uh, figure out. And there's a lot of different places to turn to to learn how to make our Assyrian dishes, um, which is great. So it's all about having that curiosity and then taking a minute to just learn more about the culture. Definitely. We're in 2019, and there's a lot of progression throughout culture. We're redefining a lot of stereotypical roles throughout society and within genders. I feel like that it's not the case as much with us anymore, but more so in previous traditional generations. It was often that the woman in in an Assyrian household did all the cooking. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've taken what was probably long considered to be strictly a duty or a responsibility of a traditional homemaker, Mm -hmm. and you've made it both a hobby and a successful business. I think it's safe to say that you illustrate the importance of women and men alike to understand that not only can culinary duties in the home be fun, but also a way to expand your mind and familiarize yourself with other cultures. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Wow, it just opens up a window to connect with, to me, having a passion and like a desire to like learn. So that should be the first thing, right? If you have that, then this should, it's a, no, it's a no-brainer. Learn how to make dishes from like the world's oldest cookbook. I love saying that because wow, that's something that you can share with people. It's, it's just a story that hasn't been told and this, this is your opportunity to share it. You have, you have cooks, skilled cooks in your home, your mom, your dad, whomever it might be. Learn from them, take a minute to ask that question because if you like your kipta prepared a certain way or your dolma or your harissa, ask. Um, 
And if you can't, then you come to a certain kitchen and have yes. a meal with us. <laughs> but I think it's so important because again, it connects us humans on a whole different level. And I think that's what's more, that's the most important piece. It's having these connections. It brings us closer to one another. Um, I usually love walking around um, right before the dinner is completed. Uh, Dan and I usually like to walk around to say thank you one final time to our guests. And that's where a lot of those questions come from, from, from our guests. And it's about the history, it's about the culture. So if others are so curious about, you know, our food, our history, I really think that, you know, it, it should start from, from us. I mean, it's just, that that's when you start learning about others and, and kind of connecting the dots and it just brings you all closer together. I, I don't know how to describe it, but when you travel, it's when you see it, it's when you enjoy it and you embrace other cultures because we're very similar in so many ways. And more specifically, how can we help foster a culture where boys happily go oh. into the kitchen and learn to whip up some dishes, Assyrian or otherwise? <laughs> Mama's not always going to be there. Because I know <laughs> my, my list of things yes. that I can cook is probably about four things yeah. long. Yeah. And that's about it. Well, again, the okay. First, I'd say it's important because, I mean, you don't want to come back. I mean, it, it just... If you enjoy our food, and it's, I, I think it's delicious, uh, why not learn how to make it? Um, it's, it shouldn't be... So going back to the ancient Assyrians, the cooks that were, um, that were recording these tablets were men, and I mm -hmm. know it's a different time, but even the cooks were, um, the skilled cooks were men. So there's, I mean, that gender, sh that shouldn't be an issue. You, you, you need food to live, so yes. why not cook good food? Why not learn how to make some dishes? Ask some questions. There's recipes available um, out there. And um, if not, get a group of your friends and we'll host a cooking class and that's how we'll do it here. It's very, it's very, um, I would say, it's an art, right? So you can, Absolutely. you can create, you, as long as you know the basic principles of what these dishes are, um, and then if you need to tweak them, and we always say this because there isn't one way to make a dish, right? And across the different like tribes of Assyrians, there's like different ways to make dishes. So there's, there isn't, you shouldn't hesitate. You should just try it. And again, you need to eat. <laughs> Why not eat good food that you can make at home? <laughs> you cook so much. So when someone cooks for you for the first time, is it like a breath of fresh air? Like, oh, I finally don't have to do anything? Or do you tend to look at what they make through like a very critical lens no, of like, oh, they no. should have done this differently? No, I, I'm still learning, right? So I don't look at it as, oh, wow, I know how to make every dish out there. No, because there's a lot of dishes that I'm still like, you know, we're experimenting with um, or we, we try to work. So when Dan and I are in the kitchen, we're um, just trying to figure out what our next menu is. We're working on that too. So for us, and it's a lot of, there's nothing wrong with um, asking questions and learning, right? So I feel like I'm still learning. And to me, food, um, it's very, so again, ancient Assyrians, two, two, two ingredients that were always in every dish, right? For the most part, except like the, the cakes, onions and garlic. Like yep. you get that in there, I, I swear your dish will just be amazing. <laughs> the more garlic, the better. But I think that, you know, I never look at food that way. I prefer the simplicity of food. Um, fancy food is great, don't get me wrong, but it's just that presentation is very important as well. That's very important. Um, we eat with our eyes before we actually try the food, and I think that's important. But it's not, it, it's not, um, I, I, I don't look at food that way. I don't critique, you know, when I'm sitting down and 
Dan, Dan's always cooking right now. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a shift. So we're working together. I love working on our dairy products and the breads. And so um, it depends. So the night of an event, our roles sort of change on front of the house and he's in the back. Right. So it's just, um, it's, it's just one of those things where if somebody's cooking for you um, and they cooked with love, that food is going to be delicious no matter what. And you've taught for so long. Can you tell us you know, a great teaching moment that you had where maybe a student was not quite confident in what they were doing and they thought they were messing up? Well, I would say, so in our cooking classes, uh, the way it works is that I love to take more of that historical approach on our dishes and going through the steps. And then um, I sort of turn it over to like now Dan, who, who, who leads in terms of the, uh, the instructions step-by-step step on how to make, and then we both go into the audience and help with the hands-on piece. Uh, what's always great, I mean, even how to stack a pot of dolma leaves, like that is, it takes, <laughs> you don't just throw it in there, right? And so watching people sort of build their own dolma pots is, is quite, you know, fascinating to sure. watch. Um, and how you flip that dolma pot, right? For presentation in the platter. Of course. Those moments. Um, teaching people how to make something as simple as mesta. We should never be buying mesta. <laughs> you got to make your own mesta. <laughs> No, seriously. It's, it's that so easy, simple. Huh? Yes, and I, it's just so much better for you because it doesn't have any of the fillers. It doesn't have any of the preservatives. It's your own messed up. Uh, just made some today. So, and cheeses and breads. I mean, that's if you really want to. Sure. You know, but I just think that the pickling, pickle at home. It's so easy to do. You can do a quick pickle or you can ferment. It's just, you have to have, and I, and I think what's changing now with, and this comes up in a lot of requests from people reaching out. Hey, can you make, you know, a batch of like kubbe? Can you make, you know, the, the burage or, you know, what we now call a pitu? I, I think that it's because people um, are working and not enough time to be in the home to, to and so they just want to go out somewhere and enjoy it so we're able to give both of those options to people they can come in and come in and learn in a cooking class they can set up um, an, a private session with a group of 15 or more or they can come to one of our dinner events or brunches and really enjoy the food so you can't really push anyone it's just that if you have the passion for it and at some point in life you want to learn there's so many, you know, there's information there. I'm so glad that we're preserving it. There's so many different, I think, ways to learn, whether it's on YouTube, going to our site for our recipes, there are other sites. Um, I think it's, it's really cool to see that, right? Because it wasn't there before. But again, our goal here at Assyrian Kitchen is to make sure that Assyrian cuisine is on that global culinary map. It's an opportunity for us to make sure that um, that appropriation of the culinary arts that we had um, is not. It, 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 it sort of it has its own restart. It's our opportunity to share our culture through the culinary arts. I'm here for it, as the kids would say in 2019. Uh, cap this off with some rapid fire questions for you. Oh. Favorite Assyrian dishes? I would say my, oh wow, it's hard. I would say all, all kubbe, like okay. all gubbabate. Nice. Yes. Favorite non-Assyrian dishes? I would say oh, plantains. It's my weakness. Okay. <laughs> Favorite meal of the day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner? I would say dinner. Okay. Person you would love to make a meal for? My grandmother. I never cooked for her. Oh. I never did that. Yeah. I would make her bushala. Yeah, that was her favorite dish. I love that. Yeah. Celebrity chef or perhaps just a person you look up to that you would love to make a dish with. Oh, well, I get to do that all the time. With it's Dan, a Dan. Right? 
And he's like, I don't really keep up with the Gordon Ramseys and all of that, but do you do you look at those people at all and think like, oh, they're culinary geniuses? I would love to do Gordon something. Gordon Ramsay's cool because he's got that attitude that I really <laughs> like, you know. So that's why. But um, yeah, I really don't have much time to sit and watch TV. Um, always on the go, but I, you know, there are a few that I keep an eye out and follow. <laughs> Maybe a longer form question here, but one bit of advice for people who want to scratch that culinary itch, but are perhaps, for lack of a better word, lazy or afraid of failure and ridicule. Ah, you gotta fail. You gotta fail. I know this is a cliche, but um, I, to this day, I'm still learning. So for me, it's all about just, you know, go with your gut and and follow through. And if you're gonna say you're gonna do something, just go after it. And I think with food, don't be afraid. You can, you can create it, you can burn it, and you can try again. So there's nothing to lose there. And it's if you're going to make it for your own palate, you make it the way you enjoy it. One thing we like to ask of all of our guests, and I'll, I'll end it like we always do, what's something you would like to tell our entire global audience of Assyrians everywhere? Wow. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that we all have a duty, a responsibility, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in another, it's just, if there is an opportunity for you in life to share something about this very ancient and beautiful culture, you need to do that and don't wait. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating the differences that we have in our, in our culture. And I think that that's one thing that's important, but the only way you get to that is by being curious about everything else that's around you. So if there is an opportunity for you to share your culture through the paintings that you see here, through the food, through your storytelling, through these podcasts, like, wow, that needs to be told. And it's important why. It's important because it just brings out the color and the beauty in all of us. And then at the same time, it's being able to listen to others and other cultures and taking that in and just sort of building on that. Like that to me is so important. So don't hesitate. I think it's very important to celebrate who you are. You can check out more details on Assyrian Kitchen at AssyrianKitchen.com and on Facebook and Instagram, just search Assyrian Kitchen. Autorina, thank you so much wow, for your thank time. thank you. I love talking about awesome. food. I love eating food. This has <laughs> yeah. been a great episode, and thank I thank you. you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode in its entirety. We appreciate you all. A reminder that if you have not subscribed yet to the podcast, you can do so using pretty much any podcast app on your smartphone. Also, check out AssyrianPodcast.com. There's a list of the more recent episodes up there for you if you need some catching up to do. And you can also read more about the team. As always, we do this because of you, for you, and we appreciate all the support and all the listens week in, week out. And we'll be back next week with more good Assyrian Podcast content.